Welcome everybody to Unleash the Fastest Hour on the Internet. And did you know that we're often solving the wrong problems and it costs us time, money and energy. In today's episode, we are discussing problem solving and we'll show you how in as little as five minutes, you can start applying a three-part system to solve your toughest problems. Not only will this make you more valuable to your employer, but it will also help you make better decisions create more original ideas and lead more remarkable lives. I'm your host, of course, Jeff Tetz, CEO of Results, where we believe poor execution is the number one reason businesses fall below expectations. For over 20 years, we partnered with management teams to help them solve execution challenges to grow their businesses faster. And thank you to our show sponsor today, Parley McClaws, a terrific team and a full service law firm please give Parley McClaws for all your legal needs. And now on with today's episode. So we're fortunate all the way from Copenhagen, Denmark to be joined by Thomas Waddell Waddellsberg. And he is the author of a phenomenal book called What's Your Problem? It's a book on how to solve the right problems. He's also the, a co-author with Patty Miller of Innovation as Usual, a Harvard Business Review Press book on the art of driving innovation in regular organizations. Thomas has worked with managers in nearly all parts of the globe. His research has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, the Financial Times, and The Economist. His work on innovation led HR Magazine to recognize him as a top 20 international thinker. As an executive advisor and keynote speaker, Thomas has addressed organizations such as Cisco, Microsoft, Deloitte, The Wall Street Journal, and the United Nations. Thomas holds an MA in Media Science from the University of Copenhagen and has an MBA from IESE Business School. Prior to his business career, Thomas served for four years as an officer with the Danish Royal Guard. So very, very colored uh, and decorated background. Thomas, welcome to Unleashed. Fantastic. Thanks, Jeff. And I can tell from your comment around a uh, decorated background that you don't know the Danish army. Uh, it, it is a, <laughs> we, we are quite tiny. Most, most of the time we run around and practice saying we surrender in different languages. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks for, uh, yeah, thanks for clarifying. We have a, we, we have no proximal, uh, uh, proximal uh, influence there, I suppose. Yeah. Our influence on uh, military coming largely, of course, from our own and then the U.S. So, but uh, so excited to have you here. And again, all the way across the, the pond, I understand you're visiting some family uh, in, uh, in Copenhagen. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, I've, been, uh, I've been in New York during the COVID outbreak. And now I, after nine months there, I went back to Copenhagen to see my family for a little bit. Uh, my, my parents, they have wintered over here. So it's quite nice to be back among, among the Nordics. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they're, uh, they're so happy and delighted to see you. So, uh, Thomas, your book was, uh, was such a, a thought-provoking book, and uh, it, it certainly made me think about a, a lot of things, and in particular, the way that I look at problems, the way that I approach problems. And, I, and I'm not alone to the point where you, you wrote, you spent a year and a half writing this wonderful book. I, I guess where, I, where I'd like to start off is, what's wrong with the way that most of us approach problem solving? Um. I'd say it's that there's a missing link in the process because when you think about problem solving, there's the solving part and we're pretty good at that in general. Like mo most professionals know how to solve problems, but there's also a part that's called uh, in academia, it's called problem finding, which is basically the question, are you actually solving the right problems? And that's a skill set, And that's a skill set that most people don't master. I did a survey of, 
uh, more than 100 uh, C-suite executives, 85% of them came back and said, this is something our organizations don't do very well. We waste a lot of time and money solving the wrong problems. And I found that even people who actually know how to do it, well, it's kind of tacit knowledge. So they're not capable of sharing it systematically with others. So it's really the big missing link of getting good at solving the right problems that, that I've taken aim at. Yeah, and, and I, was, I think I was really impressed by the simplicity of it and that, uh, that anybody can do it. So I, I am looking forward to getting into that with you today. You also have a really interesting story that I think frames, the, it frames situations and scenarios that we get into in, in, our, in not just our companies, but in our lives every day. I, I wonder if you could share the, the elevator story. Yeah, it, it's, a, um, it's really a story that I found. This is the simplest possible way of explaining what reframing is and how it's different from, for instance, analysis. Like you imagine that you own an office building and that the people in the building, they are complaining about the speed of the elevator. It's too slow. Uh, now you'll notice here that what most people do in a, in a problem solving process, they just take the problem for granted. Okay, the elevator is slow. How do we solve it? Uh, how do we make it faster? And then they come up with solutions for doing that, you know, more powerful motor or uh, do we need to go out and buy a new elevator to fix this? If you speak to a smart or experienced landlord, they will often suggest a different solution, namely to put up mirrors next to the elevator. Because what happens is people arrive, they see the mirror, they go, oh, oh, that's beautiful. And they forget time. The point here is that the mirror solution is not a solution to making like the, the, the issue of having a slow elevator. That's actually a solution to a different problem, namely that people get annoyed by the weight. So it's a very simple condensation of this core idea that when you're faced with a problem, instead of jumping into solution mode, try to see if there's a different problem or a, way, a different way to thinking about the situation that you might address instead. Yeah, and how often do we spend thousands of dollars? And in that example, they literally could have spent thousands of dollars speeding up the elevator, replacing the elevator, and it still would not have potentially solved the problem. Yeah, and, and, I, and I see this in organizations all the time, that we, we fall in love with the solution and or we default to doing something like, oh, is our product not selling? That must be because we're not investing enough in marketing. And then we pour a lot of money in marketing. And is that necessarily the issue or is there something else going on? Yeah, so this, absolutely. Yeah. So you've spent a lot of time thinking about this, and I, and I mentioned at the uh, uh, at the onset that you spent a good portion of about eighteen months writing this book, let alone like the research that went in before you started writing the book. So you understand this problem very very well to the point that you've been able to really distill the essence of 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 how just all of us, even if we've never read your book, could start to solve better problems more effectively. And you've you've really drilled it down and distilled it into three steps. What are those three steps, Thomas? Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll share those, but I've, uh, I'd say one thing that struck me as I developed this framework was actually the need for simplicity. Yeah. Because there are problem diagnostic frameworks out there. You can get a black belt or a green belt or whatever, but they are so cumbersome and they are, uh, they're great if you have one problem a year that you really need to solve, but they are not useful in, on an average Wednesday afternoon when you run into a problem of some sort. And so through my work with companies, I realized this has to be simple. It has to be a, a very basic habit that you can actually do as part of a normal meeting. That, that was a little bit the, the missing piece in, uh, in the landscape as I saw it. Uh, 
So uh, uh, I'll, I'll show actually, uh, I'll show the three steps because what this drills down to is really whenever you have a problem, well, here's what you do. Normally what people do is to jump straight into solutions. Instead, you do three things. You go in first of all and say, wait a second, what is the problem we're trying to solve? That's, that can be just a line or two. This can be like, well, the elevator is slow. Then you go in, ideally with a couple of other people, and it's almost as if you're brainstorming for different ways of looking at the problem itself. You're, you're, you're thinking about, is this really about the speed of the elevator, or might it be about something else, like the wait time, or that people are unhappy about a third thing that they're not telling you about, or whatever it is. And then at the end of that process, you need to decide how to move forward. Because the big danger, I think, with reframing is that you can spend too long in kind of analysis mode and not get your act together and move forward. So basically, this process of saying, what's the problem? Spend a little bit of time trying to see it differently and then figure out what's our next step. Got it. So the framing, if we want to just explore the framing piece a bit, and I, and I think it, it, it's not a very elegant example, but if I look at this as a sandwich, I think the reframing part is really the, the meat of the sandwich. But I, uh, I, I'd like to spend just a little bit of time talking about like, you know, maybe an example or, or the proper way to approach the first step on the frame side before we start to reframe. Yeah. Uh, the framing bit isn't necessary uh, because what people tend to do they immediately jump into solution mode. So they say, okay, how do we make it faster? And it's critical to separate the solution you have in mind from the problem you're trying to solve. And the best way to do that is simply to either like write it down one or two sentences or just explain, hey, here's the problem we're trying to solve. It's important here that this doesn't become cumbersome. It's not about writing a dissertation on the problem. It's literally yeah. just like, putting some raw material on the table so you can start working with that and trying to reframe it. And like that habit of saying, wait, are we solving the right problem or what's the problem we're trying to solve? It also helps derail in a positive way the kind of momentum towards going into solution mode. It creates a natural thinking break where people can say, okay, this is the problem. Now let, let's, let's discuss it. Yeah. And, and Thomas, how often should you be doing this with a group? So you, you, should you be sitting down with your team to solve problems or when, how do you know it's a, it's a team problem versus a personal, just a personal task? Uh, I tend to think of it at, per default as a team process mm -hmm. because one of the central things, and we will get into that with the reframing is it's difficult to see your own blind spots. Like we, we are in a sense often too close to our own problems to see them clearly. And so while you can make progress on a problem by working on it alone, you're just going like, to get, get to good results a lot faster if you pull in a couple of other people, uh, ideally somebody who thinks a little bit differently from you, and bring them into discuss the discussion around what is the problem actually, what, how can we think differently about this. Yeah. And, and Thomas, I'm just picking up on something that you said there around writing them down. And you talk about that in your book too, that, that it's really important to write these down. Like you talk about breaking out flip chart paper and having pens and pads of paper. Like what, why is it important to write our problems down? I, it just came from an interesting observation. I uh, work, working with companies and trying to teach them to do this. You can actually, I, I saw people walk around with a problem in their head that they've been struggling with for a month or a year or longer. 
And yet it was actually nebulous. It was, it was fuzzy and unclear to them. And only in the instance where you actually have to write it down or sparing that, just explain it to somebody else, that's where it becomes tangible. Uh, and if you, you, you fail at, at, at this if you allow the problem to remain kind of fuzzy and nebulous roaming around in your head. And writing it down also just helps you start to look at it more objectively as, as something separate from yourself. Yeah, got it. So that's the first step. So frame the problem. And, and now we get into the second part of your three-part system, which is the reframe. And, and, and there's, there's five essential steps in the, in the reframe. Take us through the reframing piece. It's really um, the, the five strategies uh, that, I, that I think of them as is, is kind of questioning strategies. Um, just a word about where this comes from, and we, we, we'll, we'll kind of delve into them. In my work, when I, when I tested this with companies and tried to solve real world problems with the method, it stood out uh, pretty strongly that not all questions are equally good at surfacing useful angles on a problem. For instance, uh, this classic around the five whys, like ask why five times, that can actually lead you astray. Like, cause that in the elevator example I shared, that leads you to say, why is the elevator slow? which might be the exact wrong question to ask. Uh, so the strategies are really uh, based on both research and I just tried this in practice with, with uh, hundreds of different companies, trying to figure out what type of questions are most helpful in surfacing new perspectives on a problem. So that's really where, where I think the framework comes from. Um, I, yeah, the first one, that's uh, looking outside the frame. It, it kind of ties to what I said with five whys. What do people do when they have a problem? Well, they delve into the details. If, if you're kind of like, okay, analyze this problem. And then they go in and do a very nice causal analysis of why the elevator is slow. Yeah. What experienced or professional problem solvers tend to do differently there is they actually don't delve into the detail. They take a step back. And instead of looking at what the, the, the problem that's put before them, they ask, what are we missing here? Like, what's not on the table when we're trying to discuss this? Is, is this really about the speed of the elevator or is there something completely different going on that we're currently blind to? If you don't get that right, you get trapped in the first framing of the problem, you know, whoever happened to, to frame it that way, if you will. Got it. And, and the other thing that I think is a, is a reflex uh, reaction when you're faced with a problem and I say this all the time is what's let's get to the root of the problem. And you suggest that that's actually very dangerous. So what's wrong with talking about the root of a problem? Uh, it's really, when you think about it, that there's an assumption there that problems only have one real cause and everything else is just symptoms. Yeah. And that's a dangerous way of thinking about problems because most of the problems we face in our lives, they are multi-causal. There are many different factors that play into it. And in a sense, that's good news because that means there are potentially many different ways of trying to think about them. But if you are stuck in this perspective about, oh, there's one root cause and we just need to dig really deep until we find it, you are going to miss out on, on the more creative or innovative solutions that might be out there versus just going into, you know, uh, don't want to disparage engineers uh, because some of them are very creative thinkers, but there is this tendency to kind of like, good, let, let's put everything down and understand the causal system. Yeah. 
And I guess it's similar, I guess, to the, to the five whys. It just takes you further down the same path yeah. instead of looking for different paths. So, so, the first, uh, so the first steps look outside the frame. The second one now, so rethinking the goal. What is, uh, how, do we, uh, how do we start to rethink the goal, Thomas? It's really based on the notion that we tend to not question our goals. We tend to just take for granted what we want to achieve. And sometimes you actually can make more progress by thinking differently about what your real goal is. I, the, the example I use sometimes is um, if you have a family holiday of some sort and you always end up in a political argument with your drunk uncle, uh, is your goal really to win that discussion? Or might you adopt a different goal, which could be to get a, you know, establish a stronger relationship or just like get through Christmas without fighting or, or whatever it is. I, it, yeah. It's just the basic issue of saying, what does success look like? And then might there be a different way of succeeding? Like, uh, is that we don't, so we don't get locked into one specific goal that you're trying to achieve. Right. So is, so this, the, the, the goal is really to take a step back and think higher level than more altruistic longer term as well. Is that fair to say think about a longer term goal at first? Is that helpful? Yeah, it could be. Uh, I, it differs how the goal changes, uh, but it's really just the recognition that uh, you need to question that part as well. Like one of my favorite examples from the book is um, uh, this is a story from Robert Sternberg, who's a, a big name in creativity research about an executive who he loves his job, but he hates his boss. And so he's kind of like, okay, I, I got to find a new job. I can't stand this guy. He goes to a headhunter. Uh, he talks to the headhunter. The headhunter says, yeah, sure. There's lots of demand at the moment. I can easily find you a new job. Then he goes back and talks to his wife that same evening. And the wife happens to be a bit of an expert uh, problem solver. And together they find a much better uh, goal to aim for. Namely, uh, the next day he goes back to the headhunter and he hands the headhunter not his own CV, but his boss's CV and say, can you find a job for this guy? <laughs> and according to Sternberg, it actually ends up happening that the, the, the annoying boss accepts the new job, having no clue of what's going on, and that the, the manager ends up being promoted into his boss's old job. So kind of instead of the goal of I have to escape this company and get away from my boss, maybe there's a goal in saying, how do I get my boss out of here and stay in the company I love? Right. Uh, so yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. No, that's, a, that is, and I laughed when I read it in the book and, and uh, you're right. Cause we would focus on the, the problem is I have to find a new job, but the bigger problem, a different problem or rethinking the goal is I, I need to not work with this person anymore. And there's a yeah. number of ways uh, and do it legally and ethically. There's a number of ways that, uh, that I don't have to work with him anymore. So if there's people that are, uh, that are tuning in right now and all of a sudden you start to get random calls from headhunters like David Applin group, <laughs> uh, you'll be a little bit weary that maybe you're not perceived in the light that you, uh, that you thought you are with your team. So that's uh, that's a great example. Uh, the third step is examining bright spots, Thomas. What does that mean? we have a tendency to focus on the negative side of things. I mean, that's pretty well established. Interestingly enough, even with some of the worst problems we're facing, there's typically what's called bright spots, which is a positive exception. So yeah. um, let, let's stay in the boss area. Uh, your boss is really bad at accepting feedback from you. Like whenever you try to give uh, him or her feedback, they just completely ignore it. Except when you think about it carefully, there's actually one day 
month and a half ago where you gave a piece of feedback to your boss and not only did they listen, they actually acted on it. And the, the question there is, what was different about that day? Like instead of focusing on when things go wrong, then you try to say, has anybody else solved this problem? Have I in fact solved this problem before? Or has it at least been not as bad as it used to be? Looking at the positive exceptions can start giving you new insights to the nature of, of the problem you're dealing with. Yeah, I love that. And, and the, there was a powerful question there, which is, uh, where is the problem not as bad? So yeah. if, if every time we have a problem, if we remember that question, that'll take us down that bright spot path. There's a, Thomas, there's another story in your book that I thought was really interesting. And, and it's the story of relationship struggle. So the husband and the wife, they're getting into these fights and they go to counseling and the, and, and the counseling uh, inevitably, you know, put your hand up if you've been in this boat before is, is they take you to your childhood and yes. here's why you see the world and here's your attachment style and you're insecure in relationships or what have you. And sometimes it's not that complicated. And you share a story of a, of a husband and wife that had these fights and they recognized that when they, when they had difficult discussions with varying perspectives in the morning, they didn't fight. Yeah. And so it, they had a 10 o'clock in the evening rule. And so they didn't, they didn't, they wouldn't get into anything challenging uh, after 10 o'clock at night. And I thought, wow, like I can use that right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You would have saved me thousands of dollars on counseling in the last 12, you know, the last 15 years, Thomas, if you wrote uh, I, your book earlier. Oh, I, well, I'd like to get a cut if I can now from now on. <laughs> it's kind of that. Yeah. It like, it's a beautiful story. It's my friend, uh, Tanya Luna. She's a, she's a fellow author as well of a book called surprise and her husband, Brian. And it was literally just the recognition that the fights they had. Sure. There were childhood elements and they came from different countries and blah, blah, blah. But there's that overlooked aspect of the fact that all of their fights happened after 10 in the evening when they were super tired. I, I love this example because we, we have these horrible ideas that are, are kind of spread through generations. Like if you've been to a wedding where like somebody got up and said, you know, never let the sun go down over your anger, uh, you know, at typically like a divorced uncle, uh, <laughs> you know, on his no, third marriage. let the sun go down over your anger and, and kind of wake up in the morning when you have energy and then deal with it there. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's fascinating to me how bad advice can get promulgated through generations through mechanisms like that. Yeah, it's a terrific story. And, and there's a lot of crossover, actually, to, uh, to research on resiliency. And, and uh, you know, Lord knows we need resiliency now as much as we ever have. And, and uh, one of the, one of the, the tips uh, for resiliency is to look to a similar situation or a similar challenge in your life that you've actually successfully overcome. And it can give us a lot of genuine, authentic courage to, to continue to move past it. Uh, so yeah, good, good story. So step one is rethink the goal. The second step, or um, this, the first step yeah. is look outside the frame. The second one is rethink the goal. The third is to examine the bright spots. And then the fourth step you call look in the mirror. What is, yeah. what is that one? Um, I, so uh, just to be clear, the, the steps, you don't have to do them in sequence. It really yeah. depends on the problem, what you want to, you want to attack, but like yeah. looking in the mirror, uh, well, uh, it's really just when you think about it, how do people think about problems? Well, they see themselves as innocent victims and they are convinced that the problem is caused by other people, uh, idiots somewhere over here that are creating chaos in my life. Yeah. That's a really comforting perspective to take on a problem, but it is not a very constructive 
way of thinking about it because nine times out of 10, there is something about your own behavior or lack of behavior that is at least contributing to the problem. I, I know you had uh, Sheila Heen on in a, in a previous session. Uh, this is some of her work as well around the idea of contribution. It's not blame. It's about figuring out this problem is caused by multiple people, including myself. What is my contribution to creating the problem? Yeah. No, and, and I, I think that sounds good in theory. And then we, we, we show up at work and we seem to be surrounded by people that perhaps don't have the self-awareness, they're under stress, they're, they don't seem to have the ability to take ownership of anything. How do we deal in situations with, you know, maybe challenging employees, coworkers, colleagues, uh, even personal relationships that we don't think are really willing to look at their own perspective? Hmm. Um, I, I sometimes uh, even resort to my own method here and ask for bright spots. So if you're thinking of a specific person there, that there's challenges with, they don't ever want to take responsibility. Um, what, when were you closest to solving that problem? Right? Like is, maybe it's about not having other people in the room when you have the conversation. Maybe it's about being out of the office in a different venue when, where there's a little bit more willingness to be vulnerable or self-critical or whatever yeah. it is. I love um, Bob Sutton who wrote the book, uh, The No Asshole Rule. He made this observation that uh, when people read it, like nine times out of 10, they ask, how do I deal with people who are really like horrible, like psychopaths or whatever? They very rarely ask, what are the signs that I might be, <laughs> you know, a bit of an asshole at times? Like, you, you know, that you, you have to step into the willingness to look at yourself critically uh, in order to get this right. Yeah, we'll, we'll beep that out for the podcast uh, as well. And you're the first person I think that's ever swore on the show. So we're going to send you, a, oh, send no. you a nice, uh, an award for that as well. That's awesome. <laughs> And, uh, and so there's a, there's a fifth, uh, there is a, there is a fifth uh, recommendation that you have, which is take their perspective and, and uh, similar to what we were talking about there, but uh, how do we take other people's perspectives? What does the, what does the take their perspective look like? The, the most surprising finding from research into what's called perspective taking or, or empathy, if you will, is that while we have the, uh, the ability to take other people's perspectives or at least try most, the most frequent mistake we make is to never even attempt it. Like people, weirdly enough, basic as it sounds, remember to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Basic as it sounds, you actually need to ask the question. It is not until you ask it that people genuinely say, okay, maybe my sister isn't just an idiot. Maybe things actually do look different from her side. Maybe she didn't know what I knew when we went into this conflict or whatever it was. It's such a basic thing. But if yeah. you don't do it actively, you're just gonna default to your own assumptions about, oh, they're just bad people, or my client is just risk averse and they're hopeless or whatever, whatever it is. Yeah, so, uh, so that's very succinct. So there's, there's five things that we can do to start reframing problems. Look outside the frame, rethink the goal, examine bright spots, look in the mirror, take their perspective. And, and Thomas, I'm, I'm glad that you, 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 you um, acknowledge that this is not sequential. You, you use these as you need them. So how do we know which one we should use, which one we should start with? Do you have any, any advice on that? Uh, I have not found a, a clear rule. It, it's really yeah. just a sense you get, once you get into this mindset of working with problems, the more you yeah. do it, the better you get at doing it. 
the more you'll be capable of kind of seeing, oh, this might be a good question to ask right now. I myself, I tend to favor, uh, you know, the bright spot question a lot because that's just a very easy starting point. And sometimes you just arrive immediately at, oh, wait, there is actually this issue. I'm, literally earlier today, I had a discussion with somebody who said, my problem is I need to have a, a better to-do list system so I can prioritize my work better. Yeah. And I asked for a bright spot and it turned out it had nothing to do with to-do list. It had to do with whether he was being disturbed or not during his workday. On the days when he went to the office during COVID, he worked and didn't need a to-do list. He got his stuff done. On the day where he chose to be at home, there were too many distractions for it. And so yeah. classic, but like, you know, tell me about a time where you did manage to prioritize your work efficiently. Well, there was this day last week and then you're off to the races. So it's really about um, a, a good piece of advice. is just like the, you can download the checklist on my website, like yeah. grab that checklist, stick it up next to your computer or wherever. And just when you're dealing with a problem, try to see if one of them might be a good fit. Got it. And so if I'm looking at this, let's just say there's a problem that a company has or a team has, you get to a certain point where, where you've analyzed it and you've sort of stepped outside and done some reframing. I'm imagining then you get to a place where you may have a handful of different problems that you could solve. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. Okay. It, it's sometimes a, um, there's a frustration people express with reframing sometimes. And that's, you know, it's wonderful to have one problem that's clearly defined. That feels very yeah. comforting to people, even if it's a problem they can't solve. Yeah. Whereas what you do here is actually you, you kind of explode that a little bit and suddenly you have a list of 10 potential problems that you might have that especially to some people can feel really, really frustrating. And you, 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 you don't like that core finding from problem solving research. Um, Roger Martin is a, is a big name in this is that people who are good at problem solving and innovation, they tend to have a higher tolerance for uncertainty. They're okay with feeling frustrated, feeling confused and so on, because they know it's part of the process of arriving at something better. Um, now, a little, I mean, a little bit more pragmatically, there, there's also yeah. like, so what do I actually do? You know, how, yeah. you know, I have 10 framings of my problem now, what do I do? Yeah. Um, there's a basic piece of advice, which is, of course, you need to go out into reality and test it. Like Steve Blank talks about getting out of the building. But before that, you can actually typically screen them a little bit because there's some, sometimes you hear something that's surprising. It's like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. That's a sign that it breaks with one of your assumptions. And that tends to mean you should explore that. So follow um, that, follow that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, and it's not this process. If you generate 10 different framings of a problem, it's not about necessarily systematically going through one after one. Nobody has patience for that unless it's a really big problem. It's much more about looking out for your own reactions and noticing, oh, was that surprising? Or wait, did I get really defensive when this angle came up? And that, that starts to give you clues around different potential ways of looking at the problem that you might have been resisting even. Thomas, what's the, what does the defensiveness tell us when you start to feel that come on? It's, uh, I think there are different types of defensiveness. Uh, because there, there's a sense in which uh, you just go, uh, no, no, I tried that or whatever. And this, is, this typically arises when people throw solutions at you. I'm, I'm, everybody yeah. has tried, like, I have a problem. And then people just pile on, well, here's what you could do. And it's, it's kind of like, like your shields just go up. Because there's a part of this that's about ownership. 
that's about knowing what fits for me and not just plugging in solutions from the outside. But I think there is that thing when you notice in yourself a little bit of like slightly painful recognition, maybe even that, yeah. that people are saying something, well, are you as good of a listener as you think you are mm-hmm. or, or whatever it is? When you see that, uh, that's a sign that, you know, you may want to dig deeper into that. One of my rules is when you see emotional words in a problem statement, try to look closer at that because there's yeah. often technical problems or similar often have an emotional component when you, when you dig into it. Yeah, no, that's well said. And I, and I think that uh, sometimes at least the defensiveness is a trigger that you're, you're hanging on to, or clinging on to this need to be right. And, uh, and uh, you start to sort of feel that cognitive dissonance, just sort of let it go and, and, uh, and consider a different frame. So that it, it sounds like then you can actually work on a few different frames at the same time. Like, and is there, what's the advice then on the move forward piece then? So you, you, you sort of pick the yeah. frame or two, how do we, how do we most, uh, uh, I guess in a efficient way then move forward? Well, it's, um, it depends on the problem, but there's a couple of important insights here. One of course is the basic one that you need to reality test your assumptions. It's fine that you in a 10 minute discussion might arrive at a, a theory around a problem. But of course, you need to get out of the building and, and check that somehow. The more interesting distinction, I think, is between testing your solution and testing your problem. Yeah. In the sense that you can spend a lot of time uh, trying to build a prototype solution and then putting it out there and blah, blah, blah. Whereas sometimes there are actually ways just to test whether your problem actually resonates. Like uh, Cisco is one of the companies I talk about in the book where uh, there's this character, uh, Oseas Ramirez Asad, who internally creates a program where they just go in, whenever an engineer comes up with a smart invention, uh, they get in touch with potential clients for it. And they ask, hey, do you have this problem? They're, they're not allowed, interestingly, on that call, they're not allowed to talk about their solution. They're not allowed to say, hey, look at this fancy thing we can do. They're only allowed to ask, we think you might have this problem at your oil refineries. Uh, is that true? Like, do, do you have that? Is it a big problem for you? Tell me more about it. Uh, that basically that notion of testing whether the problem actually resonates with, with a client or, or with somebody else before you even think of building the actual solution. Wow. That is brilliant. That's brilliant. Now, the other thing I'll say on that is it, it feels time consuming to do that. And I can, I'm already thinking of situations that we've been in in our own business where we get the smartest people uh, around the table, we get our whole team together for a summit, and we talk about ideas and problems and solutions, and we evaluate them ourselves, and then we launch them. And we, we, I think that we've always kind of taken the, uh, a different approach where we'll dip our toe in the water with a solution and see if someone buys it. And, uh, and I guess I guess. Uh, we, that would be a lot more costly doing it that way than the way that you've described. Are there, uh, are there others, are there some other tips that you have to well, sort of convince teams why they want to do that? Yeah, I'd say, um, you can, it, it depends on how easy it is to test your solution because if it's something like you can create a website in uh, five minutes flat and then couple on Shopify and then see if it works great, you don't need to test the problem. If it's something more elaborate, that's where you want to go out uh, and do, for instance, that there's a story I share in the book around um, a startup called Managed by Q. Uh, 
uh, Saman Romanian and uh, Dan Turan, who started it, they went in. They had a theory that um, uh, that residential buildings were interested in a one-stop shop, kind of manage everything about the building, like cleaning services, the plumber, all of that stuff. What they did was, and this is straight out of like lean startup thinking, they went out, they prepared just a presentation that looked like as if the service was real. They set up meetings with 20 uh, boards of residential buildings. And at the end of that meeting, after a lot of great feedback, they said, you can right now uh, get a spot in our pilot program starts in five months uh, if you put down your credit card right now. And surprise, surprise, uh, there's only something like two of the uh, 20 uh, people who actually signed up for it. Clear indication that while this may be a problem, it is not a problem that was perceived as big enough or important enough for them to actually put money on the table. Right. And so... Uh, you know that from having read the story, but they then went yeah. out, shifted their focus uh, and said, what about office buildings, like mid-sized office buildings? Same process, 25 meetings with office, uh, with office managers over a week and 18 of those ended up putting down in the first meeting their credit card on the table and said, sign me up. And that's where they knew they had a business or at least a problem worth solving. Then they wow. went to work building the solution. Yeah. And it, 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 it just seems so lucky though, that, that they found that solution. I know when I read that, I thought, well, how do we know, how do we know when we, uh, when we should call it a day and sort of kill the project versus we've just given up moments before breakthrough? Like, are there, are there ways for us to test or identify those scenarios, the difference between the two? I I don't think it comes down to one specific test or moment. What I see is people yeah. going out, tr doing a small prototype or prototype or whatever, yeah. and then get a little bit more input and then you build. And sometimes you end up building something that great their customers for it, but not, but not that many. Classic story of uh, PayPal. They mm -hmm. go out initially and build software to transfer money between, uh, but you know, you remember the old Palm Pilots handhelds things, right? Yeah. And there's a market for that, but it wasn't very big. Yeah. And then eventually they realize there's a much, much bigger market in, uh, in internet uh, kind of in it, enabling payments uh, on, online. Uh, so I think the answer is you don't know. You, you, you have to just go forward gradually and see what the world tells you. And as, as any startup uh, person will tell you, you may end up pivoting. Uh, the, yeah. the key thing is not whether you do that, but the speed of your learning. Like yeah. how rapidly can you find out if your idea is, is actually bad? and then potentially change direction. The worst outcome here is to spend 10 years building something that nobody wants. Right, oh, and I think about the Idea Lab uh, examples too, where I think if you talk to the sort of the folks and the founder at Idea Lab, he would say that it was timing. That was like the number one yeah. determining factor of a successful innovation was the timing of it. And that's, so yeah. yeah. I, we, so we thought we'd have some fun. Uh, we thought we'd have some fun with the attendees too, and work a real life example uh, of a problem. And so, Thomas, I'll let you guide me through this, but perhaps I'll just state the problem that that we're having right yeah. now. So, so, so I'll uh, I'll I'll prepare for the process. What what's going to happen is we're going to have uh, Jeff share a problem, and then we're going to do what's called uh, sometimes like a question storm, or Hal Gregerson calls it question burst, where basically we'll ask you to open your chat window and just write in questions, remarks, observations, reframes, really anything that comes to mind about what Jeff is about to describe. And we, we, we just 
have you chat and then we'll start discussing once we've given you a minute to kind of share your thoughts. So, so Jeff, uh, fire away. What's, what's the problem? All right. So the problem that, uh, that we're having right now is we just uh, successfully launched uh, some peer groups. And this is a new offer for us. And uh, we, th we think that we discovered a problem that, that our community of leaders has. And we're trying to solve that problem. But, uh, but we're also trying to build peer groups that have uh, uh, gender balance uh, and, and racial diversity. That's a really important thing for us. And yet, our early, um, our early peer groups that we're about to launch are mostly filled, mostly, with uh, white males. And mm -hmm. we had lots of conversations with female leaders and, uh, and diverse groups, but we just haven't had uh, success yet having them, uh, having them balanced. So that's the problem that we're trying to solve. Right. So uh, right now, for those of you who are listening, um, can you just share in your in the chat, just write quickly a question or an observation or something like if you can go in and reframe it or any thoughts at all around this problem that Jeff just, just described around great with peer groups, but they are now filled with white men. Uh, okay. how, how do we handle that? And now we'll see what, we, what kind of comes in here. Excellent. Uh, great question from Freeman, right? What do those groups need? Like what, what, what is the actual underlying need? And is it different from, uh, from different groups? Uh, yeah. Who's the facilitator of the groups? That, that might be you, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, that's why they're staying away. Yeah, so exactly. This is where the uh, looking in the mirror uh, strategy comes in, right? Is there something you are doing as a facilitator or that might kind of drive that apart, of course, from you being white and male? Uh, <laughs> the, yeah. um, so we're getting, oh, we're getting some great questions here. Uh, create excitement around it. Like what, what's, what actually gets somebody fired up about being part of a network? That's a really interesting uh, question here. Um, oh, let's see here. What else are we getting? Uh, have you reached out to leaders with diverse backgrounds to see if they're interested in participating? Have, have you actually had conversations with some? Yeah, well, not to the degree that we probably should. <laughs> the, uh, well, I mean, that, that might at least shed more light yeah. on, on what's going on. Yeah. Uh, what's the, f uh, I think Cameron Bowie asks, uh, what's the focus of the groups? Like, it, do have you gravitated towards topics that are, you know, that may be less relevant to specific groups or whatever you're, uh, you're trying to get in here? Right. Uh, there's a good deal of, so there's a good deal of questions around like understanding the target audience, right? Yeah. Um, oh, this is interesting. Bill, Billy the Kid, I love the name. Uh, do women leaders work differently? really interesting perspective, right? Because sometimes we end up inadvertently scheduling meetings at a time where there's uh, kids to be picked up. And as we know, there's still the case that in most families, it's still the women who handle most of the, the kind of kid related stuff. And yeah. so is this partially a timing question? Yeah. Um, great. Oh yeah. Don't worry. Uh, I'm a woman and I hate having to be the person who brings diversity. Like, I, I'm sure you're not the only one with that experience. I think any member of a, of a I wouldn't call women a minority, but you know, the, the underrepresented group, uh, I think it can be pretty tired to, tiring to have that. And you see it in conferences as well, right? Who yeah. gets invited for the diversity panel? That, yeah. that's, a, that's a classic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and it's the, and we're, I'm glad that we have a chance to save these questions because we're going to look at those questions uh, uh, very intimately and, and, and see if we can find, out, find some creative solutions for sure. And even some questions around why does the diversity piece matter coming up in yeah. the chat. And, 
And there's lots of reasons uh, why that matters. And, and even just a simple one is that we know that uh, the research tells us that diverse teams make the best yeah. decisions and yeah. create the best solutions. And we want to build groups that uh, groups of senior leaders to support each other, to come up with really great ideas, to build great companies, to navigate, uh, um, to navigate uncertainty, to talk about how you deal with this pandemic and, mm. uh, and you know, support networks so that you've got somebody safe to go to yeah. uh, when you maybe can't talk to your own team or your family about it. A, a general observation here on what we've just done. Um, this method can actually be really powerful. Uh, in, you know, in normally when we have a problem, you know, Jeff would explain the problem and then we would like have three or four people adding comments and having a discussion and so on. Notice how this is different. Like you go in and you have everybody at the same time, just type into the chat. And in the span of two or yeah. three minutes, you have a ton of interesting perspectives on your problem. So this is a, a, a super simple method that you can use on your next Zoom call to kind of go in and quickly get input from a group Instead of yeah. having a discussion around it, just gather the questions. Uh, yeah. Great article on this is um, Hal Gregerson has from MIT. He has an article in HBR called Better Brainstorming, where he talks a lot about this. That it's a really, really helpful method. That's super yeah. simple. Yeah, no, that was, uh, that was an awesome exercise. And I, I want to take the opportunity just to thank the community because we, uh, we value the opinions, the thoughts, and the ideas of our leaders in the community that, that we're trying to serve uh, just so much. And uh, you can just tell in, in five minutes, the intellectual capabilities of this group is very, very high. So thank you everybody. And, and we'll look at all of those, um, we'll look at all those questions uh, in, in detail. So uh, Thomas, I wanna come back to some other things that you said in the book that were particularly thought, uh, thought provoking. And one of them is around resistance. So mm -hmm. you talk about, okay, so the, this is a three-step model there's some pretty simple tips that you have to get better at analyzing and solving better problems. I get all that, but then inevitably we're going to leave this. Uh, we're going to leave the, uh, the episode today. We're going to be excited to take this back into our organizations and it's going to fall flat on its face if we're not careful, or we might at least run into some resistance. What, what are the resistance pieces and how do we get past those? It's, it's the classical question. The second you have mastered reframing yourself, you kind of run into people who push back, like your boss doesn't want to hear about it or whatever. Um, there's really two, there's two sides to it, and we'll, we'll, we can take them one at a time. Mm -hmm. The most basic one is just resistance to the process of reframing. Like you might be facing a customer who just says, uh, who, why do you want to keep talking about the problem? Like your job is to deliver a solution for us. Let's get moving. Um, there's a couple of different strategies you can employ here. You can go in and share the elevator story uh, as an example of why it's important. You can find stories within your industry of somebody who took a little bit of extra time to think about the problem and therefore arrived something better, like classic one about uh, why did Nokia lose the, uh, the cell phone space to Apple? Well, Nokia was focused on hardware when Apple really realized this was about the software game, that the right. problem in the industry was shifting. So sharing stories like that, showing up with a framework. What One of the reasons I wrote this book is actually for people who understand reframing to have something to give to people who resist. Like, hey, this is not just me talking. This is a Harvard Business Press book saying this is a really important part of problem solving. Yeah. You can legitimize uh, the process of reframing through that very, very typically. So that, that's, I said that's one part of the, the resistance aspect, if you will. 
Absolutely. And the, uh, so the process that we just went through on the Q and A, would you, would you call that the question burst process? That, that would be a version of it. Yeah. You could yeah. also do it in person and so on. Uh, yeah. question burst, question storming, whatever you like to call it. Yeah. yeah. And I love that. It was a good, it was a very, it was an interesting exercise you could do with your team was this, this, this notion of a two minute exercise that Thomas calls question bursts. So very uh, similar to that. How would we do it in person that would make it different? Um, it's mostly about managing uh, that people don't speak because this is easy when we're on a call, you just tell people, Hey, write it in the chat. If you're in a room, people will start commenting on the questions and they'll get divert, like diverted into a discussion around one question instead of getting the full list up front. So you just really need to be explicit about saying, folks, the only thing you're allowed to do for the next two or three minutes is just to ask questions or, or to make observations. And then somebody writes them down so the entire group can see them. After that, then you can go in and say, okay, what were the important questions here? And you can, you can kind of switch back to your normal behavior. It's really about like with reframing to get a quick uh, and as diverse as possible perspective on the, on the question or problem you're trying to solve. Got it. So Thomas, you've spent a lot of time in the innovation space, understanding uh, what makes innovative organizations tick and uh, everybody, uh, everybody now in a leadership position is, is, is trying to figure out ways to be clever, innovative, future-proof, not only their careers, but future-proof their companies. And, a lot, we have a misconception, I think, about around innovation, where oftentimes our really great ideas come from our existing customer base, and you actually suggest that that's faulty thinking. And in fact, uh, the most innovative companies come from looking at non, and, and ideas come from looking at non-customers. Yeah. I wonder if you could elaborate on that for us. Um, I, I should say this is not really my insight. This actually comes from uh, Clay Christensen, who really recently passed away, who's uh, widely considered kind of the guru yeah. of innovation. And where he came up with the disruptive innovation paradigm. Uh, I, had the, I was fortunate enough to actually work with him uh, briefly in a, a gig for Time Warner. Um, the core insight here in his work is that companies often try to optimize their offering for their existing clients. And so when you see the disruptions happening in an industry, it is typically because uh, another, it, uh, an entrant into the market actually focuses on people who are not served by your current offerings. And in a sense, you can actually over-specialize over your offering to fit a, a more and more narrow group versus catering to say people who are uh, who don't have the same income level where they really want a simpler, go easy go-to solution or whatnot. Uh, here, classic example, now I, I mentioned PayPal again because it is such a powerful story of how if you follow the, the actual journey of how it was created, when PayPal spoke to banks, they went in and uh, said, no, 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 we, we're not, you know, you want to give people a bank account without asking them 500 safety questions? Oh no, never, no, forget that. You're, you're going to get defrauded uh, completely into the ground. Interestingly enough, PayPal did go in and did not have a lot of security questions in order to create an account. They served a different market than those people who are willing to, you know, send in the 800 documents to certify you're a real person. And then they just got really good at dealing with fraud. So, PayPal's, one of their core uh, competences is actually to, to get really, really good at figuring out when somebody is trying to, uh, to scam or whatever it is. And that's one of the reasons why many of the 
the banks didn't get into it because they didn't believe that that market was worth serving. They didn't believe they could do that securely. And PayPal came in and said, well, we can. And then they, they, they figured out the fraud issue uh, as they went along. Yeah, very interesting. So we're, uh, we're, we're, we're drawing close on time. And I think I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, ask you your opinion on what's happening in the US right now. And I can imagine with your analytical brain, you've got some thoughts on, on uh, the state of the world right now, and, and perhaps some things that we can do to make progress. Yeah, I, I mean, for me, it, it comes back to perspective taking. It, it just strikes me whatever like, you know, because I live in New York, I, of course, look at the, uh, the election at the moment and what's going on. And it is just notable that wh wh whoever you vote for, there's almost or more than half of the other part of the country that votes for the other candidate. And it is so easy to go in and say, they must be monstrous, they must be evil, they must not care about other people, what, or whatever it is, like whatever your gut reaction is for people who's voting for the other candidate. My experience is everybody in their heads, they think of themselves as good people and they generally try to be, they try to take care of their families, they try to help their neighbors. And then there's a lot of other factors and the, the, you're not gonna get past that extreme polarization that, that characterizes the US at the moment before you start doing it locally, before you start going beyond your immediate perceptions of what an evil person this must be or they're immoral or whatever and really try to understand what actually motivates them in a way that's not a story about them just being horribly woke or horribly racist or whatever kind of narrative you have around the other, the other side. So I, th I think that's one of the biggest challenges of just getting better on a personal level of really truly understanding what motivates people who are different from you. And that takes a lot of effort. We really, we really have to be signing up for change to, uh, to dig in and understand somebody else's perspective when it seems to just uh, totally fly in the face of everything that, uh, that you value personally. So thank, thank you for that. And what are you working on now, Thomas? You have another book in the works or what are you, uh, what are you working on these days? Uh, the, the closest thing I, I am to a new project is really about kind of looking at my own process and figuring out how come I'm good at coming up with original ideas that I, they're, they're at least good enough to be published by Harvard. And I think there's a bit of a methodology to it. That they're, they're like What I do, which links to everything we've been talking about today, is to go in and find overlooked problems that I then can hopefully solve. Like, because there's a billion articles right now about how to work from home. And you're not, you can help people through that, but you're not gonna stand out. And so, what is the challenge right now that most people are ignoring? As in, you know, the, with the problem solving, people are not aware that problem finding is incredibly important. What is the problem in your ex professional life that people are actually overlooking and that you can potentially provide uh, some guidance on? I, 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 I'm messing around with it right now. It's very loose, but I'm thinking about creating some kind of guide for people who are thinking of, publishing books or giving talks or, or doing stuff like that. Excellent. What a great, uh, what a great way to end. Thomas, I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your insights and for writing such a terrific book. What's your problem? We're giving away copies, by the way, if you take advantage of some of the bonus offers and take some time to give us some feedback on the episode and on the series in general, we are giving away copies of his book and let's send people out into the world to be problem finders, not uh, problem solvers. And there's some ways that you can stay connected with us. You can find Thomas on his website at weddellsblog.com and on Twitter at Thomas Waddell. And you can also find him on LinkedIn. 
And if you have questions for us that we didn't get to today, email us at any time at info at unleashresults.com. And you can find the podcast and the summary articles and broadcasts at unleashresults.com backslash blog. And as I said, we are giving away copies of Thomas's book. So if you just fill out the after show feedback form with the bonus offers, you can be entered into a draw to win your very own copies. And we're also sharing last week's Bex Exchange. So we had over 400 people join us last week for a three-hour session. And most of those 400 people stayed for the whole three hours. So Sarah did a wonderful job of engaging the audience on adaptive leadership and managing change. And if you want a copy of that video and a download to watch, not just for yourself, but for your teams, just check that box and we'll be sure to get you a license that will be in use for 30 days for only $99. And our next two episodes, only two left uh, in season two, where's the time going? So November 19th, we're joined by Kim Cameron from the University of Michigan to talk about the effects of positive leadership. How do you get your employees to actually care about your vision? And then our final episode on December 3rd, very opinionated marketing expert, David C. Baker. So a couple of action-packed episodes left to go. And in the meantime, be well, everybody. Take care of each other and let's go start solving better problems. Thank you very much, Thomas. Thank you.